Yes. There's definitely something in here with us. We have no weapons of any kind. Start. everyone and welcome back to the pod and the pendulum the horror movie podcast that covers every single horror movie franchise uh one movie in one episode at a time i'm your host mike snoonian uh my co-host jerry is not in tonight he's actually feeling a bit under the weather so hopefully he'll take a night or two to recover and get back on his feet but he's having a bit of a rough time today but that doesn't mean the show um is on pause. We have two fantastic guests returning with us again tonight, um, making, I think, his third or fourth appearance on the show, not counting the script readings right now. We have from Dread Central, Bloody Disgusting, Diabolique Magazine, and the upcoming Complete History of Puppet Master book, uh, Nat Bremar. Nat, how are we? I'm doing very well. Thank you for having me back. Can't wait to dive into this. I am, you know, it's funny. Like, I am super excited to talk about this movie and at the same time super down because of the whole mood Mm -hmm. of the country right now. It is odd. Uh, But because we're doing a third movie, we need to have three people on the show. I think that's how it works. I think that's like in the podcasting rules. But joining us once again for his second appearance, I'm really happy to bring Terry Mesnard, Badly Dreadful, and the Scarred for Life podcast. Um, Terry, how are we tonight? Uh, Well, to quote the Alien 3 trailer, the bitch is back. Um, (laughs) And I'm, I'm, I'm okay. Uh... I'm, it, it's kind of, as you kind of alluded to right now, it's kind of really mm-hmm. difficult to, uh, to talk, to focus on this kind of thing. But um, I it also is. think that uh, it's important to continue on as normal as much as possible. Mm-hmm. Given, as much. Yep. Uh, so I'm really excited to talk about this movie. Mm-hmm. I have a lot of thoughts. Mm-hmm. I don't think you understood the undertaking we were going to put you through too. And you're like, I want to be on your alien three show. And I'm like, <laughs> great. Here are like eight things you have to watch and prepare for. I was not prepared for a three-hour documentary, that is for sure. But man, I'll tell you what, I couldn't stop watching it. It's incredible. It's just so much. It's one of those things where you just want to go back and watch it again. And we'll we'll definitely touch on that. Considering the fact that it's on the official Alien Blu-rays and it's like... It's it's part of uh, 20th Century Fox's uh, you know work. Mm-hmm. I'm surprised at how candid it is, but yeah, yeah. we'll definitely dig into that. I'm sure. Mm-hmm. So, gentlemen, what was your introduction to Alien Three? And I guess this the series as a whole, but specifically Alien Three. Well, for me, I was a huge, huge Alien kid, and most mm-hmm. horror movies and stuff I discovered on my own. Alien, I actually discovered through my parents. Both of them really, really loved the first two 
movies. And like as a kid, I had the action figures, I had the video games, and I had like the comics and the novels. But like Alien 3 for the longest time, I only knew as a Sega Genesis game. I had the game as a kid. I did not watch, I watched the first two movies endlessly as a kid. I went with my dad to see Alien Resurrection in theaters, but Alien 3 was a blind spot to me. I think I saw Alien 3 for the first time when I was 15 uh, because my parents just, they didn't acknowledge that one. Really? I had no access to it as huh. a kid. So like I knew the broad strokes of what happened to it, but all I knew for the longest time where, uh, was that it was a, you know, it was about Ripley running and pulling prisoners off of walls and fighting <laughs> aliens with a flamethrower <laughs> set to an awesome synth-pop soundtrack. I was going to ask, does the plot of the game follow the plot of the movie in any way? Not at all, except that the aliens are sometimes on four legs. Okay. And, and Ripley has no hair. And she, so Ripley is still bald. And that just might be a matter of, like, the sprites for the game more than anything else, <laughs> given the time. Does she sacrifice herself at the end of the game? Does it end in a super downer? Much like almost every game I owned for Genesis, I never got that far. Really? Oh, I remember those days when games were actually hard. Mm-hmm. How about you, Terry? Uh, so the Alien series is one of my favorites. Um, I can't remember if Alien or A Nightmare on Elm Street was the first uh, rated R movie I ever saw as a kid, but I saw both of them around the age of eight. And then Alien 3 in particular was the first R-rated movie I got to see in a movie theater when it came out. I was 11 and I begged my dad to take me to it. And yeah, so I I come from, um, I did not like it as a kid, but I have grown to really appreciate it as an adult. And kind of like Nat, I also... Did not play the Genesis one. I had the Super Nintendo version, which is still a lot different than this than the Sega Genesis one I've discovered recently. Um, but yeah, I remember running around with a blue flamethrower and a green flamethrower in that game, uh, killing aliens, and there were multiple of them. But yeah, that Alien has been the series has been um, very important to me throughout my entire life. It's interesting for me that I don't remember the first time I saw Alien Three. I know that Resurrection was the first one I've ever I ever watched in theaters and I know that like Aliens was a staple of like my childhood like it was just on HBO all the time so you just pretty much watched it like hundreds of times like fell in love with it. I was trying to go back into the memory bank and remember when I first saw Alien 3 and I couldn't remember. I don't think it was when I I think I had seen it before I picked up the Quadrology Blu-ray box set um and I know that I had only seen the theatrical version, but I can't remember like the first time yet, you know, I was familiar with a lot of the iconic the, um, imagery of the movie, like the image of Ripley um, being pinned against the wall by the alien, the iconic shot. Like I remembered that far more than I remembered the movie for them. It feels a little bit now like, and actually we should say, I should say that the way we're going to cover this movie and it's going to be like how we did our Freddy versus Jason episode. Um, we are going to do it in two parts because this particular movie has such an interesting backstory of how it was made and tampered with um, that to me deserves its own episode. And then we'll get into the themes of the movie in our next show. Because unlike Freddy versus Jason, which is a fun popcorn slasher movie, this one's a pretty thematically rich to dive mm-hmm. into overall. Um, so I don't remember the first time I saw Alien 3. That's a long way about of going to say that. 
And it feels to me now like this film is kind of getting the Halloween three treatment in that people are returning to it that maybe wrote it off and are acknowledging some of what it brings to the table. Yeah. Um, it's one of those things like, you know, when I was a kid and I saw it, I mean, I was 11 years old, like the two of you, Aliens was a childhood favorite, that an awful lot. And so to come into this movie when you're 11 years old and your two favorite characters are dead in the first minute of the movie, and then your favorite character uh, of all of the movies that you had seen up until that point dies at the end, it's um, it's bleak. But I, mm-hmm. I will also contend that each... Each movie in the Alien series, to include also Covenant and Prometheus, kind of is representative of the time period that they mm. were filmed in. They seem to be like the prototypical concept of what the kind of like over-the-top 80s action horror movie is, or the kind of spooky ghost house of Alien, or the very nihilistic and industrial setting of uh, Alien 3. Like, they pull a whole lot from the time period and feel kind of emblematic of mm-hmm. Let's also to say the Alien series in general is just is a dark series. They're, mm-hmm. It's not the most uplifting, you know, happy ending on almost any of their movies. Like maybe Aliens is the one that comes closest to that, but overall, like this is a really dark. Even even Resurrection, um, the way that ends, like I feel bad for the alien at the end of that movie, mm-hmm. um, and then Prometheus and Covenant are also pretty pitch black covenant in particular pretty pitch black in the way those movies end so to me alien 3 it and we'll talk a lot more about this next week it returns to the themes of ridley scott's film where the universe basically just doesn't care about that there are terrible things out there that have no regard for you whatsoever and in the end you pretty much we all die alone so that to me is what this what resonates in this movie. Yeah, it's so tough to talk about it without diving into all the things we're going to mm-hmm. go into in the next episode because Alien 3 is a movie that I could, as a finished film, talk about for days. Mm-hmm. But Well, we will uh, hold you to that next week. But, uh, <laughs> good, good. I can't wait to filibuster mm-hmm. on defense of Alien 3 because I think probably the hottest take that I'm going into all this with is kind of much like Freddy vs. Jason. I think... Out of everything we can see out of what we were given, I think the movie we got was the best case scenario. Mm -hmm. I genuinely love Alien 3 as a film. Now, as a kid or as a teenager, I just didn't, it wasn't that I didn't like it. I just didn't have the nostalgic tie to it at Mm -hmm. all because my parents had basically hidden it from me. But I think Alien 3 manages to balance out its tone so well in the fact that it is a movie from the first frame to the last frame about accepting the fact that you are going to die Mm -hmm. and coming to terms with one's own death. And I think it is a genuinely great trilogy crack capper because it brings Mm. a perfect resolution to the actual villain of the saga up to that point, which is the company. It absolutely is about staring and it's the thing you can not, not think about it now, but like it's about staring a corporate entity that you will never ever 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 defeat in the face and giving them the middle finger and having the satisfaction of knowing that you have something they want that they cannot take from you and letting them know that they don't own you yeah absolutely it's 100 and that's the theme that carries through a lot of the alien films is that corporate malfeasance 
mm-hmm. that you see in the part of Weyland Yutani. Um, and I think as the series goes on, you the the corporation exerts even more control over time. You see how it becomes this all encompassing thing that you can't avoid or can't. Def- and I really can't wait to dig into it next week because um, I will also contend that it is a metaphor for the AIDS epidemic. Okay. Yeah, I totally see that. I would definitely 100%. Yep. Can and I, definitely I can't wait see to that. talk about that next mm-hmm. week. All right. As a little so, teaser. As a little <laughs> teaser for what's going on next week. If there is still a country next week, then right. we will be able to bring this to you. Um, so for that, uh, no other reason alone, I think the country should n- unite right now to find hide the fact that we're going to talk more unite about the things of Alien 3, pretty right. much. So, um, but let's talk about the early genesis of this movie. Um, as far as I know, the first writer commissioned to bring something to the table was William Gibson, mm-hmm. um, sci-fi writer. But there did not seem to be a lot of enthusiasm on the part of Fox at first to re- similar to Alien to Aliens, they didn't seem like they were in a massive rush to bring Alien 3 to the table. And it's just a fascinating part of like Hollywood history in that even though there are sequels all the time, there's still, there's not the mindset like there is now where when you're buying a property, you're thinking it has to at least be a trilogy if we're going to have any interest in picking it up as a studio. Back then it was like, eh, you know, if we get to it, great. If not, yeah, what are we going to do? Yeah. Uh, and like, the, you know, especially considering that aliens really only happened because Cameron wanted to do it so badly mm-hmm. and they just, you know, came together and they gave him the movie. Yeah. Like, I don't think... It's interesting that Alien even became a franchise because I don't think the brand was something they were ever like planning to develop in that way. And I think by the time Aliens came out and was huge and there was the pressure for it, it's so clear. I mean, even listening to interviews that they really didn't want to make this movie. No. Virtually any point. Yeah. They would keep pouring money into it and the whole time it felt like they were doing it with gritted teeth. And then it felt like they were doing it because they, A, had sunk so much money in, but B, were like, oh shit, the studio's not doing great right now. This thing needs to be a hit for us, like aliens, in order for us to stay afloat. Mm-hmm. I, but I do have to give them some credit for uh, getting a first draft from William Gibson, because I mean, he, I, I'm not really sure what um, movies he's he's been in, but he's considered the, you know, the the father of cyberpunk and his book like neuromancer and everything kind of set the tone for the kind of noir near future stories and technology and cybernetics. And it it seems like, it seems like it would be a good fit for a series about shady corporations Mm -hmm. and the kind of nihilistic Mm -hmm. tones that the, the, the series explores. But what you get from his script, it feels like it's something a lot more akin to aliens. Like if you, went to see aliens in the theater and then we're like, what's the next chapter going to be? Then like Terry, to your point earlier where you're like, yeah, like as a kid, I didn't really love this movie. I could see if this movie came out as it was written, like 15 year old Terry being like, fuck yeah, this movie is a a blast Mm because it's a lot of action. Um, It, you know, it puts the emphasis again on having more aliens. Although I guess from the first draft of the second, they scaled it way back from like multitudes of aliens to like three of them overall. Um, and it has space pirate. And let's face it. I mean, everybody loves space pirates. <laughs> Who doesn't? Yeah. Yeah. I think um, 
especially compared like this first draft and then Eric Red's draft. I think the initial problem with both is that uh, both movies felt like they were trying to like, okay, Aliens was so much bigger than Alien. And then let's, let's try to be bigger than Aliens. And you mm-hmm. can't get bigger than Aliens. I think going smaller was such a smart choice because Aliens is about as good as a blockbuster can be. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah, it's the perfect like action movie. I mean, it really encapsulates everything that we love about 80s action cinema and a nice little sci-fi patch overall. Um, so to try to outdo that would have been would have been difficult. I think you kind of see like resurrection goes back to it very much like if Alien Three kind of mirrors a lot of the themes of Alien, then Alien Resurrection in a lot of ways mirrors what Aliens was going for, mm-hmm. and it's fun, but it doesn't quite it you know it doesn't really succeed in that regard overall in terms of like matching the scope and the scale and the overall quality of. Um, What's interesting about Gibson's script is he's told by Fox, we're probably not going to bring back Sigourney Weaver for mm-hmm. this. So, you know, don't really worry about her so much. We want Michael Bean to come back as Hicks. We want Newt to come back, um, but we don't think we're going to get Weaver. And th- a guy we're going to talk a lot about, I think, in the next couple minutes. Um, did either of you gentlemen watch The Last Dance, the Michael Jordan documentary in ESPN? No. All right. I've watched a bunch of it. I still have to catch up on the end of it, but there's a ready-made villain in that, uh, Jerry Krause, who was the uh, general manager of the Bulls. And he was very much like, there's a ton of scorn heaped on him uh, throughout the documentary. When I watch these wonderful making of Alien documentaries that are part of the Blu-ray box set, like David Geiler is that guy. Like he is the villain Without even knowing it, he is the villain of these documentaries that I watch. Well, um, he comes out swinging with the, the quote about no women turned out for aliens, so yes. let's have a male hero. Like, yeah. he, like <laughs> right out the gate, I'm like, oh, dude, <laughs> really? You're going on record saying mm-hmm. this? And I, the other thing I can't stress enough is that you know this script was commissioned with that in mind in 1987. This was immediately mm-hmm. on the heels of Sigourney Weaver's Oscar nomination yes. for Aliens. Mm-hmm. Yes. Right. You're 100% right. Like, like Academy, Award, uh, Academy Award nominee Sigourney Weaver, <laughs> like, brought back maybe as a cameo if they could fit her in for mm-hmm. a little bit of the movie. You know, and if you're Michael Bean, you're probably pretty pumped because you're like, yeah, I'd love to be the star, you know, of the movie overall. Um, but it, it basically, it is a... Um, space pirates find the Sulaco. They bring Bishop on board with um, them overall. And some of the fun concepts in this movie, and then Waylon Yutani, um, find Newt and find Hicks. Um, the fun thing about this movie is, and maybe I, I, I listened to it incorrectly, but it didn't seem so much as that persons were implanted with alien embryos and eggs, but like the enzymes from the queen that were left behind in the Sulaco basically caused an infection that literally turned people into xenomorphs. Yeah. So that instead carried of a, over into Eric Red's script as mm-hmm. well. Which that's a kind of, I mean, it kind of refutes everything in the alien movies, but my God, you would basically have like where, where xenomorphs basically where you would have these transformations of humans into them as opposed to the chestburg. That would have been a lot of fun. 
I think, especially with practical effects in 1987, 88, like, you know, put Rick Baker on that and let him work as magic. I think that could have been. So for people that want to, that script has been floating online forever, but Dark Horse also adapted it into a graphic novel in 2018. And Audible released it basically as an audio film. Um, I don't really have a better way to describe it, where uh, Lance Henriksen comes back as Bishop, uh, Michael Bean returns as Hicks. It's about a two-hour and change um, audio drama. It's directed by someone called Derek Miggs, uh, or Derek, uh, sorry, Dirk Mags, who I guess has made a little career out of doing these audio dramas based on a novelations. Um, it's a lot of fun to listen to. I was kind of going through that one today. I would strongly recommend it. It's got a score that's pretty fun. There's a lot of great Foley effects to it. Um, and it moves really quick. Like, so you get a pretty good idea of what the movie would have been if you kind of catch it. Yeah, their, their audio dramas are really good that Audible yeah. Aud puts out. Um, I've been meaning to listen to that one. Um, it's been on my phone for about a year now, I think. Yeah, yeah same. Yeah. Definitely, you know, if you get a chance to listen to it, um next week Terry, i'd love to hear your thoughts on it when we talk more about them um yeah i just recently listened to it and really found myself really enjoying it overall um but who is originally tapped to direct alien 3 i had it as Rennie harlan it's the first name that i could that was something i really wanted to talk about because so many people turned mm -hmm. down this movie Rennie harlan i believe was the first one mm -hmm. they hired him he he kind of waited for scripts mm -hmm. for a while, and then he tapped out. Uh, Terry Gilliam, uh, they approached him. He turned it down on the grounds that he absolutely fucking hated the first film. How? Oh, he, he literally, he's got like an interview going off about it where he says it's like one of the worst films he'd ever seen. And like, yeah, yeah. Um, Clive Barker turned down Alien 3. Uh, that would have been interesting. Yeah, like that one, uh, Clive Barker's like my favorite like storyteller. So initially I'm like, ooh, my God, like that would be so exciting. But then I totally get why he didn't do it because he's talked about it as well. And it's basically, you know, his whole thing is kind of enriching the monster and empathizing the monster and telling the monster's perspective. And you don't really get that with the xenomorph. Mm -hmm. No, we talked a bit last week about how there's a reading of the movie that like the aliens, the xenomorphs, they're not the bad guys because you have this company coming in trying to take over their world. They're getting harvested and all the xenomorphs are really doing is perpetually, they're just basically continuing their species. Like that's mm -hmm. what they do. It's not like they're, you know, out and out evil. It's just like, hey, this is how we continue our line. So that's just nature taking its course. But yeah, I yeah. think you're right. There's not a lot of motivation aside from Yeah, yeah, it's an anthill. Yeah. Would have been interesting to see his take on the creature from Alien 4. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah, like Clive absolutely would have found a way to turn mm -hmm. Alien into the shape of water if he if he had done it with <laughs> the chance. Can you imagine answering the question of xenomorphs? Fuck, absolutely, absolutely. Um, so yeah, Harlan walked off after about a year, and I think in the documentary he says like, "Eh, I just couldn't find a way to do something that was different enough from what James Cameron did." So he moved on at that point. Mm -hmm. um and nat you said you wanted to talk about eric red's script eric red's script was the second script and like this was again another huge high profile guy you know eric red had written the hitcher 
and near dark and like he was a really really good writer but he had so many studio notes like everything was a studio note on his script and it turned into this weird absolute mismatched cartoon of a thing so it's kind of like like first of all um there are no characters left over from the Mm -hmm. previous movie at all uh they they all died okay um and it's basically like this uh gated community in space this like big uh high-end like space station and you have the xenomorph virus again and like everything is extreme like i recommend reading the script for the gore alone because it's so over the top and out of place for an alien movie like the the double in like the the tent impalement scene and jason goes to hell mm-hmm. is literally a scene that happens to a couple having sex in this alien movie Jeez. jesus <laughs> so it's going full 80 slasher it's full blown and like it's so true like every single alien in the script is the size of the queen alien in aliens okay like every alien is like 15 feet tall uh, the xenovirus affects everything. So, at the end, at the end, the entire space station turns into a xenomorph. The space station itself. The is space a station itself are, turns are into an alien. <laughs> oh my god! I gotta read this. You, you said it was amazing. online, right? It, it is online, as far as I know. It's still I'm on have there. To find it. That's that sounds incredible. I can't tell if that's incredible or incredibly stupid. Yeah, I can't. I can't quite tell. Literally, Eric Red hates the script. Everyone who's read the script is like, this is not good, especially because it gets like so much wrong. Like, you start off on the Sulaco and you're like, okay, they remember the name of the Sulaco. But then the space station is also named the Sulaco. Ah, okay. And then the pod they escape on from the space station is named the Sulaco. So you can't quite remember what he keeps attributing right. that name to. Uh, yeah, and it's like, it's like Gremlins 2 and that there's, there's just one of every kind of everything there's an alien for everything but there's not a hint of comedy oh wow okay so it's played straight (laughs) it's played straight and it's so so bizarre and weird and bad and eric read you know he completely disowned that script Mm -hmm. well we're here to make him take ownership but it is a treat (laughs) a little cough there so then there is so at that point what is it i'm going to mispronounce this but david tooey Yeah, I don't know how to pronounce his last name either. I think that's correct, though. So Yeah, I think David Tui was the head of uh, Vincent Ward and mm-hmm. John Fasano. Um, he comes on, he gets a lot of notes. He bring, gives the idea of the prison colony mm-hmm. and, mm-hmm. and then is quickly jettisoned from the project, never to be heard from again on it. Mm-hmm. But they keep, that ends up making its way into the idea. But then Vincent Ward comes on. He's tapped right and direct based on the strength of the navigator of Middle Odyssey. Um, this is probably the idea that most people are familiar with if they know what some of the original ideas were for Alien 3. Um, his idea is this wooden fortress planet that's run and populated by celibate monk. Um, it's apparently this really strong script. It's been called by some like, one of the greatest science fiction never made. And some of the plot points do make their way into Fincher's film. Um, the heavy religious overtones obviously make their way in. Mm-hmm. The idea that these monks are abstinence and they see Ripley as a, to that abstinence in their faith and dedication. And Ripley is impregnated in, in Ward's um, version of the script as well 
Ripley is impregnated with the Queen Alien, sacrifices herself at the, the greater. She survives. Oh, I thought she was dead at the end of it. No, that's what's kind of ridiculous about that concept. Is she does get the Queen. Or that is still a thing, except at the end, she basically gets it taken out via CPR. That's gross. <laughs> yeah, like the... the uh, the monk, like Brother John, I think, or whatever, that survives with her, basically gives her like CPR to kind of to kind of pump the chest burster out, so that it goes out like up through her throat and and into him and kills him instead. Oh, that's, that's right. so disgusting. I, I do remember. I remember reading about this because Fox wanted an alternative ending where she survives, so they did that, and then of course Weaver wanted Ripley to die, mm-hmm. so that kind of yeah. yeah. Yeah, Ripley went the Michelle Williams and Dawson's Creek route where she was like, basically, write me a, an ending where I die so I never have to come back for the, <laughs> until the fourth movie where you basically, I can buy a small island off the Caribbean on what you'll <laughs> pay me. So, which, so, um, but Ward is, you know, they go, If correct me if I'm wrong, but a lot of the sets in Alien 3 are built around Ward's idea. And that's, a big part of the reason why this script was just rewritten on the fly once once Fincher comes up because they had already like built most of this stuff before once they given Ward the go ahead. I think that's right. Yeah, yeah. They had been they had been working on building all of these massive wooden sets and and going mm-hmm. forward with the kind of construction of it before everything fell apart in a completely different direction. Right. So they had to use that kind of stuff as like a, a piggyback. Uh, point for what Fincher would eventually do. So and that's, you know, that's really hamstrings Fincher at that point. Uh, and we'll, I guess we're going to talk about that a lot in a few minutes here, but why he was so hamstrung based on what the studio had already agreed to. But at some point, I think it was, again, Hill and Geely basically are like, this movie is not, you know, we need this movie to be a huge commercial hit. Um, and he's making an art house movie with an alien in it. It's not, doesn't sound scary. And it sounds more like, you know, Passion of the Christ uh, or something rather than like a science fiction action blockbuster. So mm-hmm. they start giving him all these notes and what they want him to do. Um, he talks about being called, excuse me, he talks about being called to the studio and waiting outside for an hour to be let in for a meeting. And he basically says, do it my way or I'm out. And they call his bluff and he says, I'm out of here. Like, I can't make this movie the way you want me to make it. So, mm-hmm. but he, I, he seems like from hearing him speak on it, really disappointed with the, not just not, you know, losing the opportunity to make the movie, but just the, the really shoddy treatments as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that didn't, it didn't stop there. <laughs> no, it only gets worse. Um, you know, for uh, a movie about the, you wonder if Fox is just really dense and you know, you're, they're <laughs> making this movie about the evils of a company that, you know, interferes far too much. And if that's co- going completely over the studio executives at Fox's heads as they're making. Um, so David Fincher is hired a- at age 28 uh, for his first movie. Uh, who would like to speak on Fincher's background before uh, making movie? Well, he's a music video director. Yeah, yeah. there we go. Um, <laughs> he did music videos and commercials. And he also, what I learned from the uh, the documentary, that he also worked at ILM, Industrial Lights yep. and Magic, which I did mm-hmm. not know. He was like, one of the uh, crewmen for Return of the Jedi, I believe. Um, but he made a lot of these videos that like, 
I were staples of like me watching MTV as a kid. Like, you know, Madonna's like a prayer video. He worked mm-hmm. with Michael Jackson, uh, Roy Orbison, when Orbison made his comeback in the late 80s. Um, he did Paula Abdul's videos, like The Way You Love Me. Um, and Billy Idol's Rock the Cradle of Love. I think that was with um, part of the Adventures of Ford Fairlane soundtrack. And I'm mm-hmm. trying to, you know, that was like, Jesus, like young, horny, teenage boys everywhere remember that video for good reason so god love you david fincher for giving us that gift um but fincher is brought on and you know it's they talk a little bit about how alien does have a tradition of giving these young directors who they believe have a vision a chance to kind of come in and um see what they can do it sounds like they thought they would be able to keep their thumb under David Fincher, but he comes in kind of pissing with full of piss and vinegar with his own ideas and he wants to do things his way. Well, and I, I love what Sigourney uh, is quoted as saying in the, in the documentary where she says that I liked him right away. Big meeting at Fox. He was wearing an animal rights t-shirt and she said, well, how do you picture Ripley in this movie? And he responded, I don't know bald (laughs) like and she's like from right there i just i loved him immediately Mm -hmm. and i just i so i think that like he had like a good uh relationship with like the cast because that yeah that just uh when when she said that just cracks me up weaver comes out really strongly in his corner oh yeah even even after the movie is released because Mm -hmm. for a lot of people this would have been like a one and done um based on it you know not really reaching the heights that the uh, Fox felt it should, and then all the behind-the-scenes shenanigans that we're going to get into here. Uh, But Weaver would go to the press and talk about how she thought Fincher was treated unfairly by the studio, that it wasn't right, and that like his vision for the movie was so much better than what was actually given, you know, what he wanted to do versus what the studio forced for two different things. So I think it was based on that. And then based on, I think the producer of seven being like, eh, the folks at Fox are a bunch of idiots. So I, I trust you that he was able to, you know, get the directing gig for seven, which obviously really launched. So Fincher walks in, he's 28 years old. Um, he's in, what is it? Pine Whistle Studios in England. I'm trying to think of the name of the giant studio, but. Pinewood. Pinewood, thank you. These yes. massive studio lot. And you have at this point already millions of dollars that have been set spent on the sets. Um, the FX crew had been working tirelessly behind the scenes, creating like the um, Hicks corpse and the Newt corpse and what they think the alien is going to look like. Well, but and they also sp- spent a lot of time because they didn't have a script. And yes. so like they wanted to make sure people had work. So they're uh-huh. just they're just giving people all these different ways of like going about and, and keeping busy while mm-hmm. the studio figures out what the fuck they're doing. And yeah. some of the designs they made, like the, yeah. the bodies and stuff, it shows what happens when you have like unlimited time because yeah. there's no script. And they can just make it look insanely realistic yeah, it was at creepy. that point. Just the, the Weaver, um, the Weaver dummy is like super creepy looking. Yeah, watching, there was like a behind the scenes part where one of them is just carrying the dummy and it's just flopping in his arms. I was like, yeah. oh my God, because it looked just like yeah. her. Um, but I think producer John Landau would, would say like, look, every movie starts with one thing. It starts with a script and we did not have one. So Fincher is on set literally being handed pages of script like the morning they're supposed to shoot this thing. 
Um, he's got his own ideas. They're being shot down. And he's got studio executives like peering over his shoulder. And you can almost get the sense you could feel them counting the dollars being spent each moment that he wasn't doing something exactly that they want. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. And, and like even um, Sigourney would, would say no mercy from the studios. Like it was just this constant onslaught from the studios mm-hmm. where they thought there was like a, a quote. I can't remember if it was from Geiler or, or who, but they were basically saying that they were hiring him to just sort of shoot the script. And yeah. so they would just like deliver a script and then he would start to like go, well, what about this? What about this? And mm-hmm. realize that, they underestimated his obstinate. Yeah. Yes. And that's such a studio filmmate thing that a lot of directors don't get and like get in over their heads was what, especially on their first movie is that so many studios basically consider it like TV directing. Mm-hmm. Like you're just coming in to shoot and, and get out of there. And it you know, was as little resistance as possible. Well, what's really funny is like, this is, Fox's third crack at Alien. And each time, you know, they hire directors that are young, that don't have a lot of like feature film work under their belt yet, that they would go on to become like legends in the industry. And, you know, you figure they're hiring these young buck directors because they think they'll have that control. You hire Ridley Scott, James Cameron, and David Fincher, three of the more I would say like set in their ways, like very creative, like we have a vision and we want that vision executed. So Mm -hmm. like they basically go over three in this regard (laughs) of like trying to find people that they're going to just like be able to keep under their thumb. But eventually they get Paul W.S. Anderson. Eventually he's like, sure, (laughs) what do you need? Well, I'm trying to think the gentleman who wrote Amelie and directed Alien Resurrection was kind of like, sure, this is the script you want. I'll just give you the script you want. Whatever. You know, we're good. Um, they finally, on the fourth crack, like, get a little bit of what, what they want at that point. But um, then the thing is, you have a director visually and a screenwriter who are so mm-hmm. absolutely different yes. that that yep. movie mm-hmm. is so bizarrely Frankenstein. It really is. It really is. Um, yeah, it, it's like... There's some peak Whedonisms in that movie that have not aged well. Yes. Um, you know, that, getting, admittedly, getting... Firefly owes basically its entire inception to that movie. Okay, well, there you go. At least a couple, one good thing came out of, out of it then. Um, but Fincher is immediately at Loggerhead uh, with Walter Hill and Geiler. Um, Geiler relays a story early on, I forget what it was, where basically... He tells the studio, like, Fincher is going to come to you and say something, and I need you to have my back on it. And the studio was like, sure, absolutely. Like, whatever you need, like, we'll put him in his place. Fincher goes to the meeting, and he makes his pitch and wins the studio over. And they call Geiler back and go, you know, we're going to go with, with what Fincher. So we think that, you know, he was right in this one. So Geiler, being, you know, a grown adult, mature, and able to handle conflict in a responsible way, um, basically picks up his ball and goes home and says like, well, I'm not going to go to England and put up with this guy telling me what I have to do. And God, if he doesn't listen to everything I say, you know, I'm going to go live off of Walter Hill's talent for another. So I can do that. So, um, yeah. I, I couldn't believe like he he's on, on camera saying that um, if I can't have direction of the script for a first time director, like fuck you, dude. Yeah. <laughs> fuck off, yeah. Yeah. So, 
here, here's, I didn't say this, here's what I want to say about Guiler, because he talks in the Alien documentary about, oh, O'Bannon's script was terrible. Like, I really, I should have gotten credit for that script, and O'Bannon is very much saying, like, well, you changed the characters' names, but the basic structure is still there. I'm not giving you a screenwriting credit for changing some names around. And it seems like that's reading Guiler's like bio in modus operandi. It seems like that's what he would do is he would take someone else's work and he would tweak just enough of it to change like nothing that was core about it. But you know, it would, it would be like changing the t-shirt you're wearing under your hoodie basically. Mm -hmm. And then he would demand like a full screenwriting credit. And you know, he was born into the industry. His father was a producer and screenwriter. Uh, he then, you know, so he's born into the industry, the foot in the door. Then he glommed on to Walter Hill. Um, and when you look at the stuff that Geiler did on his own, like there's nothing that's there that's of any, to me at least, of any sort of real import. And all this guy seemed to do was like latch on to other, like belittle other people's work and try to really glom onto it. He just struck me as a real... Mm -hmm. Yeah, one thing that ironically was really eye-opening in an almost kind of tangential off-topic way about this documentary and about learning all of David Fincher's experience on this film is I couldn't help thinking like, okay, taking into account a music video director on their very first feature who was given an, a completely unfinished script and has an, a major studio standing over them the entire time telling them how to direct it and... All those things, I couldn't help thinking, I can absolutely see why Samuel Bayer never made another movie after the mm. Nightmare on Elm Street remake. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, you're right. Yeah. He said, I've had enough. I'll go back to doing what I, what I know how to do. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I think the dip Bayer, like, turned down the job, like, three times. Yes. Yeah. He, he vehemently did not want to do the movie. No. He didn't, didn't like the original. He didn't want to do it at all. But they really wanted him to do it because, you know, a high-profile director wouldn't have shot the things they wanted to shoot. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It, yeah. That's a really good, yeah. Like he's like Fincher almost quit completely on films after this. He was so disgusted by the, um, by the treatment that he got during it. Um, at one point, like producer John Landau comes in to oversee things, line producer, um, Ezra Swordlow comes in. His role is to basically make sure that it doesn't go completely over budget and he talked a bit about, he's like, look, Fincher's a great visionary. We obviously knew the dude was super talented, but the way he wanted to film this thing, he's like, by the time I would have uh, gone off a set, I would have been there so long, I would have had an English accent by the time <laughs> we actually left, because I would have been, we would have been shooting for just that long. Mm -hmm. um, but Fincher is, you know, it, it, you know we, we talk about the treatment Fincher got, like he's not, without any blame at all. Like there were moments yeah. where he would get hung up on really esoteric things um, and he would shoot something 15, 20 times and then another 15 or 20 times once he thought he got it. And you could see like, I know like uh, Swordlow talks a lot about how they just couldn't get any of like uh, second unit and third unit filming done uh, because of all the complicated stuff that, that Fincher was trying to do. And it was putting them like super behind. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I mean, also, I, while he's credited for working really well with the actors and a lot of the actors really enjoyed mm -hmm. working with him, he apparently wasn't very pleasant with the crew. They yeah. have um, a couple of people in the crew yeah. saying that, like, quoted, very unpleasant to work with, and he was very awkward mm -hmm. with them, and he would blame them for stuff. Yeah. So, like, there's, I mean, let's be honest. I mean, he's he's definitely not 
perfect. And I think that that has kind of probably continued through his career. Mm-hmm. He's, he's, he's a yeah. perfectionist. He does film. I know people either really enjoy working with him or really hate it. Mm-hmm. Um, there's so many cars coming by. I'm sorry. One second. Okay. It's so loud. Um, so, so I, I think that I, it's definitely not that he's like without sit in this but on the other side of things like i the story that really made me sad for him was the one about the dailies where you know he delivers a a three-hour cut of the movie Mm -hmm. and they're going in for dailies and looking at it and there was always it's quoted this person there there was a studio watchdog who would hang out after he left and be like okay don't listen to that this is what you're yeah and it's just it's hard you know i i really wish that I mean, the assembly cut that we'll, I'm, I'm sure we'll talk about next next week is pulled from it. But I'm, I'm still really sad that, that this movie isn't finished in the way that right. after all of the, the pain and the suffering that everyone had to go through. I mean, it sounds like a, a hellish shoot that we didn't get to see a full representation of what Fincher wanted. There's one scene in particular, or not one scene, one arc in particular that's cut from the theatrical from the assembly from the theatrical where ripley works with the prisoners to basically trap the alien place and it gives it gives one of the uh inmates like a much better arc overall um it shows ripley kind of working with them and kind of earning Mm -hmm. their respect a little bit and that whole thing is cut and i know landau said they cut it because they felt that it took away from some of the mythos of the alien. Like it made it less impressive because they're going to be kind of trapped. Um, but I thought it, it, it really made the film like a much better movie, like keeping that in there. It's sad to see that go. Um, and it built up more tension having it in there because you knew it was going to get out. Like, oh, there's an hour left in this movie. I wonder if the alien ever gets out. Um, you knew it would, and you were just kind of waiting for that to happen. Um, and that was one of the things that that he lost. And you're right, like Fincher was great with the actors, but he was really terrible with some of the crew. Yep. I think it was the costume designer said, like after the first day, he's like, "Well, here's your costumes. Like I'm going home. You're yeah. a dick. you're a dick." Yeah, and so, there was uh, there was absolutely footage um, as well included where he was basically openly contentious, and I don't blame yeah. him, but he was openly contentious yeah. about the uh, the studio mm-hmm. calling yeah. him, you know bunch of morons mm-hmm. so like there are definitely you know that kind of if you're trying to be like the the leader and the spearhead of this project that doesn't really instill much uh confidence in you mm-hmm. when you're trying to work the long hours that you know yeah yeah there's a one scene where like i guess it's like where when charles dances um head is like smashed in by the alien and he was just basically you could see like how exhausted the effects people were with this and you know after they finally like get it how he wants like oh yeah but now the blood's all now the blood's not right yeah and (laughs) they're looking at him and they're like we want to murder you right now baby we absolutely want to murder you at this point like they just did not like being around him um so you know it's definitely one of those things where like you need to let the director direct but at the same time sometimes the notes aren't necessarily a bad thing sometimes you have to like what is actually doable I think the hard thing here is like Fincher was really um, working with sets as opposed to a script. Like we've already built this. We're not building anymore. Mm -hmm. The money has run out. Whatever is here, you have to make it. So I'm sorry, Nat, you were going to jump in. Yeah. It's just at the same time, there's something so weirdly inspiring that is something that was such an absolute nightmare 
to mm-hmm. make for everyone involved could still turn out that good. Absolutely. And like that a movie that you feel like was completely taken away from you, like isn't yours mm-hmm. can still, you know, that there are still people like me out there who just, mm-hmm. who just love it. Yeah. Well, it speaks to the talent of David Fincher for one. It speaks to the talent of the editor, Terry Rawlings, who had done mm-hmm. Alien and Aliens. And, you know, it speaks to how dedicated and how, what a master of his craft he was. You have Weaver on the top of her game overall. Yeah. Perfor- uh, one of the performances mm-hmm. of her career. Yep. And ob- absolutely, uh, Tom Woodruff and Alec Gillis mm-hmm. was, was the, the design of the makeup. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, absolutely. Can we talk about that for a couple minutes? Can we talk a little bit about Giger um, being asked to come on board and redesign the alien um, and it not quite going as he wanted it to go. And I think he was pretty pissed off the, uh, mm-hmm. by the, with the partnership at the end. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think he was, he also is a very, I mean, he's an artist. He's a very, very specific artist. Mm-hmm. So he's uh, Giger absolutely was the kind of person who mm-hmm. knew kind of what he wanted and you know aliens i think the difference was that alien was a movie that just you know it was one of those zeitgeist things alien just kind of happened it was made by all of these these young people and it was perfect like happy accident that they got Mm -hmm. the creature as perfect as they did on that film and then once you've done that there's an expectation uh that you didn't have the first time that i think helps feed into that uh, on the third. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And uh, I mean, Geiger has gone on saying, you know, I think I did too much for them and the time was short mm-hmm. because yeah. like there, it's, it was such a fascinating part of the documentary going through his, his designs. Cause he had so many, he had so many different things cause they wanted it to be a little bit more erotic. So he had one with like more um, erotic, as he said, erotic lady lips. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. <laughs> and like, which is by the way, the thing of nightmares hearing Giger, <laughs> say that it will haunt your dreams <laughs> it really will <laughs> uh he is such an odd odd personality and he has such an interesting cadence to the way he talks that yeah it's uh yeah but like even uh the people said that you know that things were strained between geiger and fox and then the the people that were working on the aliens uh design for fox became part of the enemy and like there's there's all of these all of these little things that again create such a contentious shoot Mm-hmm. Yeah, they wanted to look like a puma. It was going to be on four legs. I think also to your point, Nat, for Alien, Giger's on set, so he's working yes. hand mm-hmm. in hand with Scott. And for sure. If they need to make any tweaks, or if he needs to say no, it should look like this, he can kind of plead his case at that point. Mm-hmm. Um, where here, he's like, no, I don't really want to leave Zurich. So he's like, I think he's like, I would put the things on the drop paper and I would fax them in the little computer that would send them. He was like fascinated by how fax machines work. <laughs> yeah. like, it was actually kind of adorable because he was like genuinely like fascinated with how fax machines worked. Yeah. Um, and he would like send them all these things. And then you have these two guys at the other end going like, how the hell? are we going to like actually bring this to life? Mm-hmm. And it still looks great. I did love the, the doggy in the alien. Oh my God. Costume. The whip it. Yes. Yeah. Oh yes. my God. Yes. It was so cute. It yeah. immediately made me want to get like a xenomorph <laughs> for my chihuahua for Halloween. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. And like, I kind of, I, I really do love the kind of lean kind of leaf look of, of mm-hmm. the alien in this movie, but yeah. I think it's so ironic that Giger, make, Giger makes this movie. 
a, or he makes this this design of like it's too sexual. No, it's too much of a weird, sexy lady alien. Mm-hmm. And then from Alien Three, he goes on to do Species. Yep, there you go. <laughs> God, he is man. Mm-hmm. Giger is definitely. Um, well, Fincher eventually basically disappears. Um, he is kind of like at this point left out of the editing process. Um, Zerdlo talks about how the shooting in England didn't much. They kn- knew they didn't wrap a movie. They just stopped filming and said, we're going to put a cut together and see what we need to do to go reshoot it. Uh, but they left England knowing they did not have a final product that was there. And eventually Fincher just says, like he's told there are certain things he wanted to add. He was denied them. Everything, all of his input was being overridden and he disappears. And to this day, like when he was given the opportunity to put together like his vision for the Blu-ray set, you know, he was like, thank you, but no, thank you. Um, this movie was such a bad period of my life and it was tampered with in such a way. I'll give you the blessing to put together something as long as you don't call it a director's cut, but I don't want any part of it, which is kind of a bummer because I love the assembly yeah. cut, but I would love to see what he would come up with. Um, so he disappears. And I think he has said a lot of people hate Alien 3. Nobody hates it. But yeah. I think I think now we're fine. We're going to talk about this more next week uh is why we don't hate it. i know jerry said it's his second favorite in the series behind the original um you know i got it somewhere between alien versus predator and requiem it's somewhere in that that not kidding it's not like that <laughs> it's like wait so wait what um, we're being trolled <laughs> yeah we're definitely definitely trolling right now but what else do we have to add about the making of it well i i want to talk about the the score okay um i i I think it's a really unique use of of a score that kind of ties into more of the percussive, mm-hmm. more of the um, the sound effect aspect of it. Because the score is, you don't really notice it in a lot of places until it gets incredibly majestic. And I think that's yes. because it ties into the action more um, in, in ways that, again, feels kind of uh, complementary to the time period. You know, we're going into kind of that grunge and there's the industrial music setting out there's like the mix of like um synth with orchestral going on here Mm -hmm. um i think it it really ties into the the feeling of the movie and what i really liked is um when when it ties into the the climax of the movie and it, it gets to this majestic aspects of it it still doesn't completely go like john williams majestic there's that kind of um minor key to it or it doesn't resolve in way that most chord progressions would would resolve so and i think that this kind of ties into how fincher would eventually go on with his career of working with composers to really key into the kind of um theme that he was trying to get with his movie Mm. yeah yeah i think elliot colventhal's score is great but i'm also kind of of two minds about it because at one hand it's really unique and even when it's majestic it's gorgeous but when it gets to those like big points and those big kind of sweeping moments, it's also almost identical to his score to Interview with a Vampire at times. Oh, yeah. So he's using some of the similar motifs at that point. Yeah, it's just there's, like, of like, oh my God, they're like indistinguishable. Yeah. Um, and there was talk too, like there's a lot of how the score and the sound effects kind of clash with one another because Goldenthal 
would talk about how he would try to create these really natural moments and almost use like found objects as instruments mm-hmm. at that point as part of the score, which creates some very interesting sounds, but you can definitely see where there's a clash there with what the effect uh, is doing. So, mm-hmm. Hey, we never even talked about Michael Bean getting ripped, yes. getting, let's do that briefly <laughs> before, because how do we not? So I wanted to bring that up earlier. Justice, because... justice for Bean, friends. <laughs> To go from being the star in, in one in one cut to uh, not even being in the movie. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, but at the same time, it's just, there's something just so, like, fascinating about it. He has my favorite quote in the documentary. He says, usually with any sequel like that, they just keep the characters going. It's a done deal. They're like, man, does that speak to the difference between the expectations of action movies mm-hmm. versus horror movies. Because right. <laughs> in action movies, sure. In horror movies, no. No, not quite. Why would you expect that? But Aliens is not a horror movie. Aliens is an action movie with monsters. You mm-hmm. know, it, to me, it's not a horror movie at all. Um, so I could see why he would think that. Um, but, you know, he talks about how he learns that he's not going to be in the movie. And then he learns that they've created like a mold of him with like the chest burster coming out mm-hmm. and like you know he says like there is no way like i was gonna allow that to happen it to me it struck me as a little bit of sour grapes to hear him talk about it oh, yeah. um so he like threatened to sue his agent threatened to sue because it was his likeness um and well, he also very directly talks about the fact that he did not think he was paid well yes on aliens yeah. and he mm-hmm. thought he was going to be paid more Yep. For Alien 3. Well, and even Which says that he fair. got paid more for the photo that they used yeah. in Alien 3 than he did for Aliens. Yeah. So, which is fair. And as you know, yeah. like, yeah, to your point about returning for the next movie, it's like, all right, we've, like, I think Sigourney Weaver made $30,000 and she makes like north of a million dollars in Alien 3. And I think like four times that in Alien Resurrection. Um, so as the movies like get better in quality or go, you know, as she gets paid more, like the movies aren't quite as well. So it's interesting. Um, but he was like, man, if I knew how good Fincher was going to be, I would have just been like, put me in your next movie. <laughs> Which like Michael Bean is, <laughs> Michael Bean in the Brad Pitt role in Seven, like give me that movie. Would almost have made more sense. Yeah. Yes, it definitely would have made a lot more sense. So Justice for Hicks. Um, we'll but definitely talk about that more next week. Maybe my hot take tease for next time is that I think the decision to kill off those characters between movies was mm-hmm. maybe smart and possibly even necessary. Mm-hmm. I agree with this hot take. It fits in with the theme of the movie. Yes. I mean, it definitely fits in with that theme, but it's also like a huge F you to the audience. too. Yes. That, As know, is death. Right, it's death itself, but 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 yes, right. But you don't walk out of a movie and get shot by a studio, actually. Like, you know what I mean? Like, it's I don't know. It's definitely one of those. It's definitely it was a bold decision. I think time has been very kind to that decision. Mm -hmm. Um, And I guess too, like they talk about the autopsy of Newt and how that was making like people sick to watch it in the um, uncut version of the movie, like. You know, mm-hmm. not just that it's an autopsy, but it's an autopsy of a dead 10-year-old girl. And even, like, when you watch that scene, there's really, you don't see any cuts or anything at all, but you hear it, and, oh, the, the, uh, the sounds of that scene are, like, absolutely stomach. All right. 
I think that concludes our talk on the making of Alien. Next week, uh, Nat and Terry will be back to dive deep into the movie. Um, Before we go, what would you guys have to promote right now? Where can we find you? And what should we be looking out for? Uh, I've got the complete history of Puppet Master book. I'm still putting together. Uh, In the meantime, I have a a fiction collection I put out for free Mm -hmm. uh, for quarantine because nobody's getting any money. Uh, called Slices of Julie that's uh, available. Uh, you can get it like right in the pinned tweet on my Twitter profile, at Nat Bremer. Uh, I've got articles coming uh, soon. Uh, you know, I've got stuff at Bloody Disgusting. I've got stuff at uh, Wicked Horror, uh, you know, Red Central League Magazine, all the places mm-hmm. you can find uh, my name. And uh, that's, uh, that's what's uh, going on for me. Thank you, Nat. Terry, what do you have coming up? Well, first I got to thank you, Mike, because you kind of, when I was on uh, your episode, you kind of kicked me in the butt to get this pride thing going. And so pride month is happening at Gailey Dreadful. We are going to have for 40 voices this year Whoa. Um, that are contributing. Um, I, the number is flexible because there's some people that haven't gotten any stuff yet. Um, but we could have upwards of people contributing this year. We're doing um, a fundraiser to support the Trevor Project. Um, hopefully we will uh, smash that record this year like we did last year. And what did, uh, you, what did you raise for it in your first year? First year was um, a little over $2,000. It was wow. $2,000. For, um, and this year I, I increased the, the goal to 3000 So hopefully mm-hmm. we can hit that. Um, but yeah, that's going on. So you'll see um, a new, at least one article every day from a different person um, that is part of the LGBTQ horror community. Uh, we got some really good stuff coming up for that. I'm also on Scarred, Scarred Podcast, Scarred for Life Podcast, where we are for June. We're highlighting LGBTQ voices as well. Mm-hmm. Our first episode is out um, the same time as this episode, and it's with Sam Weinman, uh, the director of the upcoming Queer Horror Doc for Shudder. Um, other than that, you can find me at gailydreadful.com and on Twitter at gailydreadful. Excellent. So I have, I think this week, later this week, I'll have a piece up on Dread Central. Um, Nat, it's about something you and I have gone back and forth over. We discussed Halloween um, yep. at the end, with it being the end of mental, uh, mental Health Awareness Month. I actually... Um, adapted a piece I have in a book that I'm penning right now about Dr. Loomis and why he should not be your therapist. Uh, you will hate it. And it's done very tongue in cheek, but I'm really <laughs> psyched. It's my first article for them. Um, so hopefully people will like it and I will try to avoid the comment section. Um, <laughs> I'll take Jerry's advice and say, never read the comment. Um, we are, Jerry and I have discussed like with everything going on right now, We are going to try our damnedest very soon to do our first ever premium episode. Um, And that is something where we're going to do a one-off movie. Um, It'll be a $2 charge for the episode with all funds we believe right now are going to go to the Minnesota. So we're just kind of working out the logistics of it. That's going to be hopefully released, I would say, probably around the 10th of this month, if all things work out right now. Uh, we'll put it to you, our listeners, to like what movie you want us to dive deep into. It'll be like a one-time only uh, available for purchase episode for two bucks. All the proceeds will be going to support um, either the Minnesota Freedom Fund or Black Lives Matter. You know, we've got a goal in mind of what we want to raise. I'm probably going to reach out to a number of other 
um, podcasts or friendly with and see if they'll do the same and um, try to raise some awareness and maybe we can cross promote it uh, somehow. But we feel like now is the time to do stuff like so. Hopefully, you guys will be on the lookout for that and and um, you know cough up a couple bucks and have it all go to charity. Uh, you can find us listeners over at Pod and Pendulum over at Twitter. Uh, we have a Facebook group. Just go to facebook.com, search for Pod and Pendulum. Um, if you can, please leave us a review over on Apple Podcast or Stitcher or Spotify. It goes a long way to letting people know where uh, we are and have new listeners find us. Um, I always take a look at like other people have listened to, and I see podcasts like Kill by Kill and Yours, Terry, uh, Scar to Death, and Justin Beam, and I'm always like, oh, we're in really good company. It's not always happy. But until then, we'll be back next week with our deep dive into the actual Alien 3 movie, and we hope you enjoyed this behind-the-scenes episode. We'll talk to you guys next week.